0: What's up, guys? Thank you so much for tuning in to the very first episode of the Bible Schooled Podcast. Yes, I came up with that name all by myself. I'm kind of proud of it, actually. Um, But (laughs) I'm so glad you're listening, saying thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, We out here. We doing it. Um, This has actually been in the making for over a year, so... I've talked to a lot of people about this idea, and guys, I'm finally doing it. Uh, so real quick, shout out to my man Cameron Dosh for the microphone that he blessed me with. I pray that the Lord would credit this seed to your account, my friend. Thank you for the support. Um, so uh, today is uh, Thursday, April 9th, the time I'm recording this. It's actually... 11:30 right now and I actually uh this is gonna be the second time I work through this material um because I recorded a whole episode and somehow I lost the file don't ask me how it happened it was the devil it was the computer demons I'm sure of it um but I recorded a whole thing and I lost the episode so I'm having to do it again um but you know what it's all right. It'll be better this time anyway. Um, I'll be more familiar with the material. It's good. It's fine. It's fine. This is fine. Um, but anyway, uh, so uh, it's Thursday night, Easter Sunday, Resurrection, Resurrection Sunday is on Sunday, just a few days from now. Tomorrow's Good Friday. Um, so it being this time of year, I thought it would be cool to take a good look at Jesus. Uh, Jesus, particularly his deity in light of the Old Testament, and also in light of the religious context of the ancient Near East. So I just want to start off um, reading a passage that has always kind of puzzled me. This is in Matthew 26. Um, Jesus has been arrested at the Mount of Olives. He is standing on trial uh, before the Jewish court, before Joseph Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And um, picking up the story in verse 62, reading from the English Standard Version. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven, then the high priest tore his robes and said, "He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment?" And they answered, "He deserves death." Now, growing up as a Christian, I've always been very familiar with this story. I mean, this is the Easter story. This is we're leading up to Jesus's crucifixion here. And so this verse has always stood out to me because, like, honestly, it just sounds cool, right? You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It just sounds cool. It stands out. Um, and I never really heard a lot of teaching about this verse, um, but in my head and talking to other people, um, like, I kind of always just took it as a reference to the second coming, right? It kind of makes sense. Um, clouds coming on the clouds, uh, the rapture, I don't know. That's just always kind of where my head went. Um, But as I've become uh, more serious in studying the Bible, I've found that there are a lot of passages where I end up filling in the blanks with my own theological presumptions or my own cultural biases. And I think it's important to know that the Bible was written in a context that is not our own. The Bible isn't written in 21st century America. The Bible was written thousands and thousands of years ago. It's an ancient document, and um, something that seems fuzzy to us. Something that and things that are weird to us, like a lot of things, make perfect sense uh, to some to someone who would be reading it two thousand years ago. Things that don't make sense to us would make perfect sense to someone reading it 2,000 years ago. And so there's a reason why, after Jesus told the high priest that he would see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, there's a reason that Caiaphas' mind immediately goes to blasphemy. Um, So let's dig in here. Now, I want to uh, use Matthew 26 here. like That's going to be our ending point. So we're going to full circle back to Matthew 26. But our launching pad, I want to start talking about uh, the idea of a Godhead. So, um, you know, Christian, we're Christians, I'm a Christian, we believe in the Trinity, right? The Trinity, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And uh, so this idea of the Godhead, of a Godhead, we believe in the Trinity, so that's our Godhead. It's widely recognized as a Christian invention, but early Jews saw Godhead language in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Usually two persons, so we can get to three in the Old Testament. There are places where we can get to three, but it's usually a two in one in the Old Testament. There's a two-ness that's really pronounced in certain Old Testament passages. So let's look at some of those where there are two divine powers functioning simultaneously in the Old Testament. So if you read Genesis 18, the first verse says, the Lord appeared to Abraham and Abraham looked up and saw three men before him. This is the story about Sarah. uh, She overhears God talking to Abraham and by having a child and she's going to be pregnant in a year and she starts laughing. This is that whole story there. So after all that happens, um, the three men, God and two angels, they set off towards Sodom with Abraham. Verse 22 says, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And this is the point where he begins to intercede for Sodom. Um, you know, he eventually he gets God to agree to spare the cities if he can find 10 righteous people. And Of course, we know that does not happen. The city goes up in smoke. Um, but skip down to verse 33 of Genesis 18, going into verse 1 of Genesis 19. It says, And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, Lot being Abraham's nephew, of course. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. So real quick, summarizing what's going on here, three men appear before Abraham, one of them is God, two are angels, two angels leave the group, start making their way to Sodom, God stays behind to talk to Abraham before he goes his own way. Now, this distinction is really important to make. Only the two angels arrive in Sodom and see Lot. The Lord doesn't appear again until later on in the story. So let's look at verse 24, Genesis 19. Um, Leading up to verse 24, the angels, they spare Lot and his family, tell him to get out of the city. They go to another city that's nearby, but it's out of the way. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is about to be destroyed. In verse 24... Uh, Genesis 19, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. That's English Standard Version. There are two Yahwehs on the scene, two Lords on the scene in Genesis 19.24. Now, there are going to be people who don't make that distinction, who don't see two Yahwehs in the scene. And honestly, I've heard some good arguments for that position but I really believe in the context of the two chapters together, Genesis 18 and 19, you got to read those in tandem because 18 just flows right into 19. It's the same story. It's one narrative. It's they go together. Um, I really think in the context of the two chapters together, we should read two Yahwehs in the scene. So remember in Genesis 18, the Lord appears in an embodied form to Abraham. He appears in the form of man. The theological term for this is a theophany. Some of you are familiar with theophanies. Now, when God appears in a physical form on the earth in the Old Testament, that is a theophany. Some people call it a Christophany. Um, I always have just called it a theophany. Um, So the Lord is boots on the ground, bottom line. That's the context. With that in mind, go back and look at the verse uh, 24, Genesis 19. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So this is what I'm proposing. There is a Yahweh who is boots on the ground raining sulfur and fire down. And then there's a Yahweh in heaven who is supplying the sulfur and the fire. They are two, yet they are one. Let's look at a couple more examples. Genesis 32 contains the famous story of Jacob wrestling with God. Now uh, I'm going to read verses 24 through 30. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. this story in Hosea 4. I'm going to read verses 2 through 5. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So in Genesis, Jacob wrestles with God. And then when Hosea is referencing the story in his prophecy, um, Jacob is wrestling with an angel. So which was it? God or an angel? Well, the answer is yes. A lot of you already have an idea where I'm going next. So for some of you, this may be totally new, which is great. But if you're already familiar with the angel of the Lord, it'll be a good refresher anyway. So the angel of the Lord, the character of the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh, he makes his first appearance uh, in Genesis 16, Genesis 16 to Hagar. Hagar is Sarah's uh, servant, her handmaiden. Sarah's not getting pregnant, right? It's been many years since the Lord initially makes his promise to Abram to make him a father of many nations. Give him an heir. Changes his name to Abraham. Um, well, actually, I think at this point in Genesis sixteen, Abraham and Sarah is still going by uh, Abram and Sarai. Uh, but anyway, so but Hagar is Sarah's uh, miss or handmaiden, right? And so Sarah's not getting pregnant. Um, and as was customary in that time and in that culture, Sarah gives Hagar to Abraham to sleep with to produce an heir, to produce children that way. That was not the plan of God, um, but it was very common, uh, very common practice in that time. Um, But Hagar gets pregnant and uh, Sarah's a little jealous, okay? So she starts mistreating Hagar and uh, Hagar books it. So picking up the story in verse uh, seven of Genesis, Genesis 16, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over all, or over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So Hagar sees and speaks with the angel of the Lord. But after that conversation is over, she believes she had spoken directly to God. In Genesis uh, 48, 15, when Jacob goes to bless Joseph's sons, he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. So do you see the 2 in the language here? Jacob is equating God and the angel together. Both Jacob and Hagar, they equate God and the angel together. Now I'd definitely be remiss if I didn't go to Exodus 3. And I actually have a really big pet peeve about Exodus 3 and Moses at the burning bush. Moses not talking to a burning bush per se. Okay, (laughs) let's read. Let's read the let's read. Exodus 3, starting in verse 2. This is probably the most famous of all theophanies in the Bible, in the Old Testament. But uh, it says the angel of the Lord appeared in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So it's not just a burning bush. It's the angel of the Lord appearing in the flame out of the midst of the bush. It's an important distinction, I think. Um, But anyway, so Stephen emphasizes this. In his sermon in Acts 7, Acts 7, 30 and 31, Stephen says, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. So if you uh, remember going back to Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord appears in the burning bush. But then in verse four, it says, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So it's the angel of the Lord in the beginning, and all of a sudden, it's the Lord, it's God. And Stephen, he does the same thing. The angel appears to him in the wilderness, and then all of a sudden, he's hearing the voice of the Lord. It's two-ness, two but one, two but one. And there are a lot of other famous passages, famous Bible stories, um, like Gideon, um, the story of Gideon at the well. A lot of stories, a lot of passages, a lot of references that repeatedly identify the angel of the Lord with the Lord himself. They're two, but they're together. They're different. They're distinct, but they're the same. Godhead language, two but one. So this is where I hopefully start Uh, tying all the strings together. Now, I want to read from a little article on Logos.com written by a scholar named Dr. Michael Heiser, and it's called, What's Ugaritic Got to Do with Anything? Um, Now, Heiser, I think, is a brilliant scholar, and this should be a pretty good introduction to his work because I'll most likely be working through some of his other material on this podcast at some point. I really think he has a lot of interesting things to say, a lot of eye-opening things about the Bible. But this little article is on Logos.com. Logos, uh, obviously the Greek word for Word. Um, But it's also a Bible software company, and their software is life-changing for any serious student of the Word. So it's a little pricey, but if you can get it, get it. Um, But you can just Google search for this particular article if you want to read it yourself. What's Ugaritic got to do with anything by... Dr. Michael Heiser. So uh, I'm going to start reading from that article here right now. Ugaritic, the language of ancient Ugarit in modern Syria, isn't something that most people think about when it comes to Bible study. However, the clay tablets discovered and deciphered in the late 1920s and early 1930s provide an unparalleled glimpse into the life and religious worldview of ancient Israelites. Some would argue that they are as important as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Heiser Heiser himself would argue that. Um, Picking the quote back up. Ugaritic is important because of the fact that its vocabulary is so close to biblical Hebrew. Many Ugaritic words are letter for letter, the same as biblical Hebrew. It is the religion of Ugarit, however, that is especially important to Old Testament scholarship. I'm going to drop the quote right here. And just insert this uh, this important point. Um, I'm not a scholar. Um, I am not fluent in biblical Hebrew. I did take some biblical Hebrew in Bible school. <laughs> I don't know it well. And I definitely don't know Ugaritic. So I'm not a scholar. I am relying on the work of scholars, right? I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm a Bible nerd. I'm just the guy who loves the Bible, I'm familiar with this scholarship. Um, You can think of me as a curator of biblical scholarship, I guess. Um, Like, I feel like I'm familiar with it enough to present it in a digestible way. Um, So, but I'm relying on the work of experts here. Um, Okay, so I'm picking up the quote. Back up. Uh, Okay. You might be thinking that all you really need to know about the religion of the Israelites is in the Bible. You'd only be partially correct in that thought. We are centuries removed from the world of the Bible, and a lot of material in the Bible is pretty obtuse to those of us in the 21st century. This goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about reading the Bible in a context um, that is not our own. Now, those who wrote the Bible weren't writing for a technological society, so words, phrases, descriptions, and concepts that were completely familiar to an Israelite are lost on us. There's also the matter of the kinds of ideas that were floating around in Israel from other religions, like Baal worship. You have to wonder why, to paraphrase Elijah in 1 Kings 18.21, Israel kept halting between two opinions as to who was the true God. Right, Yahweh or Baal. So skipping down in the article, throughout the Ugaritic text, Baal is repeatedly called the one who rides the clouds or the one who mounts the clouds. This, the description is recognized as an official title of Baal, right? So Michael Jordan plays basketball, Baal rides the clouds. That's basically what it was. No angel or lesser being bore the title. As such, everyone in Israel who heard this title associated it with a deity, not a man or an angel. Part of the literary strategy of the Israelite prophets was to take this well-known title and attribute it to Yahweh in some way. This is a polemic. This is a theological poke in the eye to the neighboring religions of ancient Israel. Consequently, Yahweh, the God of Israel, bears this descriptive title in several places in the Old Testament, Isaiah 19.1, Deuteronomy 33.26, Psalm 68.33, and Psalm 104.3. For a faithful Israelites then, there was only one God who rode on the clouds, Yahweh. So let me read some of those references for you real quick. Um, Isaiah 19.1, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Deuteronomy 33.26, There is no one like God, O Jeshurun, who rise through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Psalm 104.3, He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. All these verses attribute the title of cloud rider to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, until we get to Daniel 7. Now, you should definitely read the entire uh, chapter, but for time's sake, I'm only going to read verses 13 and 14. I think that should be good enough for our purposes here. Um, so Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now we know this is a messianic vision, but who is riding on the clouds here? It's not the God of Israel, it's not the Ancient of Days, it's not the deity, it's a human the son of man. Now, let me give you the ancient Near East context for Daniel 7 in light of the Ugaritic. Once again, um, this is coming from the work of Dr. Heiser. Um, So in the Ugaritic, El, the aged high God, is the ultimate sovereign in the council. In Daniel 7, the ancient of days, the God of Israel is seated on the fiery wheeled throne. Cross-reference Ezekiel 1. Like the Ugaritic El, He is white-haired and aged, the Ancient of Days. In the Ugaritic, El bestows kingship upon the god Baal, the cloud rider, after Baal defeats the god Yam in battle. In Daniel 7, Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, bestows kingship upon the son of man who rides the clouds after the beast from the sea is destroyed. So remember, just go back and read the whole chapter when you get a chance. Um, In the Ugaritic... Baal is king of the gods and El's vizier, his number two guy, right? His rule is everlasting. And in Daniel 7, the son of man is given everlasting dominion over the nations, and he rules at the right hand of God. The right hand being, you know, the classic imagery for a place of power. So this is the only time in the Bible where someone other than Yahweh, the God of Israel, comes with or upon the cloud. and. The prophet Daniel does this on purpose by giving this title to the son of man. Daniel is putting the son of man at deity level and identifying him as a second power in heaven. Reading again from Heiser's article, the Jewish audience reading Daniel understood the implications. The prophet Daniel was describing a second power in heaven, a second being at the level of Yahweh to whom Yahweh himself granted authority. And although we naturally think of the idea of a Godhead as distinctly Christian, we have evidence here that the seeds of the idea are found in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. It's no accident that Jewish theological writing during the intertestamental period, so the time between Malachi and Matthew, is filled with references to the second power in heaven with attempts to figure out and how to articulate what was going on in heaven in light of monotheism. Jewish writers speculated that the second God or the second power was the Archangel Michael, perhaps Gabriel. Some even wrote that it might be Abraham or Moses, but for Christians, the answer was obvious. So going back to Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial and he says, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So why does the high priest immediately go to blasphemy when Jesus says that? Because he understood the full implications of that statement. Jesus, saying that, identifies himself as deity, and he goes beyond just doing that. He says that he is the second power in heaven. Jesus is identifying himself as being the angel of the Lord who appeared to Hagar who appeared to Jacob, who appeared to Abraham, who appeared to Moses. Jesus is saying he is the Lord himself. In no uncertain terms, when Jesus says that he is the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is saying that he was God. Thank you for listening.